Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. Hi. Hello. Wow. I'm thrilled. Just thrilled to be here. Okay, here we go. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson. We did it. We made it to another weekend, and it is somehow already April. Coming up, Dylan Marin tells us about his new book based on lessons he learned from his podcast where he literally calls up people who say horrible things to him on the internet. He wrote a homophobic message to me, and I've been in touch with him for the last five years. Plus, is the travel guide in book form dead? I mean, it remains to be seen whether that's true as an older generation of travelers is replaced by a younger generation of travelers who might have less experience with guidebooks. But first, it's our panel on the week that was. With us today, we have two people who work on the delightful NPR podcast, Everyone and Their Mom. Emma Choi is the show's host. Emma, welcome to Nerdette. Hi, thanks so much for having us. We also have Jennifer Mills, the head producer. Jennifer, hello. Hello. Good to be here. So, Jennifer, you also work on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. And Emma, you used to intern there. Uh, is this our opportunity to talk shit about Peter Sagal? Just real quick. What do you think? <laughs> Y'all in? Never. There's never an opportunity, Greta. That is the Please. correct answer. <laughs> okay, so I want to start with the fact that in March... We marked the two-year anniversary of shutdowns from COVID. I know we're a little late on this one, but y'all have to give me a little bit of leniency because I was actually trapped in Canada with COVID on the actual anniversary oh. of shutdowns. <laughs> no. That's terrible. Um, it, was, it was pretty terrible. Really glad to be back in my bedroom closet. I'll just say that. Um, but I mean, it is pretty crazy to think about, especially like... To think about two years ago, me, and how I would have reacted if someone had been like, oh, yeah, this is going to last for two years. Do you think about that, Jennifer? Wow. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, when I heard it had been the two-year anniversary, I actually thought it had been three years. So what what a nice surprise. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's just going on and on. And now that it's two, isn't that like when human babies get teeth? So I feel like if COVID's, COVID's <laughs> getting teeth now, I'm out. I don't believe in it anymore. Oh, God. They're, like, finally growing kneecaps. <laughs> what do you think, Emma? Like, I don't know. You've been in college this whole time. Like, how insane has this been? It's been crazy. I mean, I took a year off because of COVID because, like, I'm an English major and there's no point. I just online shop if there's, like, online <laughs> to seminars for too long and it just wasn't a good use of my tuition money. But, yeah, it's, like, crazy. And it's crazy because, like, things are starting, like, not normal, but things are starting, like, requiring to, like, unmask at school and stuff. Yeah, and wow. It's, like, you know... I was 19 when the pandemic started, and now I'm 22, and I'm like, oh, <laughs> it's it's weird. Yeah. What is time? Is there anything that either of you have either added to your life or maybe stopped doing that you are, like, kind of happy about and want to make sure keeps happening? What do you think, Emma? Hmm. Well, I added weight weight to my life over the pandemic, and I would <laughs> like to keep I would like to keep doing that. Cool. Uh, but I don't know. I... um. 
I am more happy spending time alone. Uh, mm. And I would like to keep doing that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that, I think that's a small pro of the pandemic. I think that's a really good one. Yeah. What do you think, Jennifer? Yeah, well, I guess so many things have been added and taken away. But the mm-hmm. honestly, the main thing that I added to my life was just like a ton of single use appliances because I... <laughs> I spent the majority, I mean, I spent almost all of the pandemic, like, it, alone in a studio apartment. And these, like, I mean, I got a blender, a crock pot, two fancy coffee makers. I got, like, I got a tabletop dishwasher, the kind that would be in an RV, because I don't have oh, one yeah. in my apartment. And they just, like, became uh, my friends and my family, and they would, like, do chores <laughs> for me. And I had no idea I was that kind of person, but I guess I guess I am. <laughs> oh, my God. That's amazing. Can I just say, when Mills when Mills got her uh, dishwasher, she texted me, and she was like, Emma, like, I can't. Like, she, I, I've never seen her so excited for anything <laughs> ever. And, like, I'm happy for you, honestly, because it's, like, a cute little dishwasher, and this makes your life so much better. I considered it a professional accomplishment, so I had to tell Emma, thank you, Emma. that's adorable that's funny i still am like extremely reticent about single-use appliances just because of very limited kitchen space but i do have like a soft-boiled egg maker in my amazon cart right now and you are making me think that i should probably yeah you have to get it it. yeah (laughs) down everything and click buy good My new motto over quarantine was like, if you really want it and you've been thinking about it, you should just get it. Like life is too short. Why not? Life is too short. Yeah. So Emma, did you do anything to like mark the two years of lockdown times? I called my parents because like um, March, I think 12th of 2020, Mm. 2020. Yeah. 2020. I like my dad, I just like bleached my hair in the dorm bathroom. (laughs) And then my, (laughs) my dad picked me up from college and then we just kind of like bought a lot of wine and then like went home. Yep. But I I don't know. I, I guess I like journaled and I just thought about it. And I like went to a party at school. And like, oh. I don't know. Yeah, it was weird because time yeah. moved so fast. I didn't realize it was a two year anniversary until it already passed. Isn't that funny? Yeah. I mean, that definitely happened to me. But that's because I was like miserable in a hotel room. Oh, right. <laughs> so sad. That's crazy. <laughs> it was. So, Jennifer, how did you commemorate three years before you realized it was only two years? Uh, I also <laughs> called Emma's parents. Um, her mom's name is Julie. That's true. Um, yeah, no, I, I honestly, I had, I didn't even think about it. I had no idea. So I, I guess like, it feels like when you miss a close friend or family's birthday and later you're like, oh, it kind of does. I should right? say something. <laughs> or like a horrible enemy's it, yeah, birthday, exactly. though, right? Because it's like, what would I have done anyway? Yeah, you yeah. Know? buy it a present, I guess. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, God, what a weird time. So speaking of weird times and strange things, the huge story from this week that just like would not stop happening was actually from the Oscars. Um, (laughs) You know, Will Smith walked on stage. He slapped Chris Rock after he made a mean joke about Jada Pinkett Smith's alopecia. Um, At this point, it happened, I mean, almost a week ago. It is still taking up space on my Twitter timeline. Um, And especially like on Monday, like that was like literally every single tweet was about what happened. Lots of people weighed in with like opinions that they probably shouldn't have weighed in with at all, honestly. Um, (laughs) But I was curious, you know, on this platform, is there anything that either of you would like to add to the discourse? Emma, you got anything? 
Um, I saw a tweet that made me laugh that like anyone who's gone to public school has seen a fight go down at six ten a.m. and I agreed with that because I saw that and I'm just like, uh, it's just another, just two mm. more kids fighting in the hallway. Yeah, well, especially the like white person shock is a little bit like, okay, y'all. Like, oh yeah, the, the pearl you know. clutching. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that reminds me. I should have I should have written it down, but it was something about like, oh yeah, no, the white people only like systemic violence. <laughs> <laughs> It's a weird situation for sure. Jennifer, what do you think? Yeah, well, in the in the midst of all of it, the I could only think about one thing, which is like, I know from firsthand experience that a public onstage live slap, nobody wins in that scenario. When I when mm. I was in sixth grade, I was the lead in the school play. I had a little scene that was like a fight with my, you know, son in the play. And I got carried away in the moment. The the acting, the emotion took over. And I think I was just supposed to say, like, Johnny Jr., I should wash your mouth out with soap. And in, and I said that and then I slapped him on stage opening Ooh. night. Oh. And I got and he like he forgot his lines and I think he was like, Oh, that that hurt. And like I got in trouble i had to apologize to him and like nobody won in that situation i mean i understand you get carried away you're an actor there's a lot of passion there but like you know nobody won i know from experience that's so funny oh my god (laughs) oh my god that is epic and amazing the play was called potato creek just uh just to have that on record and our school's (laughs) art teacher's brother wrote it oh my god oh my god (laughs) it was great so there's a new show out on Netflix. It's called Is It Cake? It is exactly what it sounds like. It's a competition baking show where contestants have to determine whether something really is cake and then make something that does not look like cake. The cake wall is making its way around. Five cheeseburgers, but one of them is not a cheeseburger at all. Oh, my God. One of them cake. is actually a cake. Oh Your time starts now. Oh, my gosh. Whoa. I don't know. Wait, they all look like Okay, so this is a show that I actually, uh, in like the deepest depth of my uh, COVID isolation misery in Canada, I was like, okay, fuck it, let's watch Is It Cake. And I I couldn't, even at that very low point in my life, I made it 12 minutes (laughs) in before I was like, I can't do this. (laughs) I just love how you can hear Mikey Day's like despair in every word he says. I mean, Emma, like, would you host a show like that? I mean, absolutely, right? I would sell out <laughs> in a minute. <laughs> I don't care. I mean, like, also, like, I don't know. It's a show where you get to, like, look at cake and cut it and, like, say stupid things about it. It's great, you know? That's it's true. not the most artistic thing he's probably ever done, but I'm proud of Mikey Day for, like, you know, getting on Netflix. Good for him. Yeah, sure. They did give him a pretty cool, like, ridiculous sword thing to cut the cake. or Yeah, cake. and I would do it just for that, for just for that worth. reason. <laughs> so Jennifer, how much are you into the like is it cake holes? You know, I mean this was a meme probably exactly two yeah. years ago and they finally made the show. Like is this is this up your alley? Are you into oh, it? Oh man. Um you know, I was like scrolling through Netflix and you know on Netflix they like show a minute trailer just like in the oh, yeah. menu. Aggressively. And I watched yeah. the trailer for like six minutes. Like, I just watched the trailer, and I was like, I, I feel like I've seen this the whole show. But yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Like, to me, the, like, premise of the show needs to be heightened. Like, I feel like if it was, like, is oh, it yeah. dog poop? And then if you get it wrong, you have to eat it or something. Like, 
Yeah. And, it, and the whole, like, the whole, I haven't seen it except for that, like, 17 minutes of the looped trailer that for some reason I did decide to watch. <laughs> but, like, it just looks like they're all lining up for an eye test because they're all, like, a thousand feet away from the cake. Yes. They're, like, leaning yeah. forward and squinting at it, it's trying like to figure out. They should just do that at yeah. the DMV. Like, if you pick the one that's cake, then you can have your driver's <laughs> license. Is it cake? No, it's not. (laughs) Well, Jennifer, Emma, thank you both so much for doing this. It was very fun. This is so fun. Thanks for having us on. Dylan Marin has been called a lot of names on the internet. Anonymous people have told him he's a moron and a beta male, among other things. I don't really want to get into them, to be totally honest. But instead of shying away from the hate online, Dylan decided to engage. He is leaning in. He has actually called some of these people on the phone for what became his podcast, Conversations with People Who Hate Me. Now he's compiled the lessons he learned from that experience into a book with the same title, Dylan, welcome to Nerdette. Thank you so much for having me. This is an honor. So obviously, as a person who interviews people, I am like a huge conversation nerd. (laughs) And I'm just so fascinated by the work that you're doing and especially the care and compassion that you're Mm. showing for people who are are being called out for bad behavior. I can't imagine how much work that takes from you. And just to give people an example, if they haven't heard the podcast yet, I think we should listen to a clip. This is from a recent episode, and I think it really exemplifies the work that you're doing. This is where you're talking to a high school student who participated in a misogynistic meme about an actress. And just a note to listeners, the guest voice is altered because he's underaged. What's really hard is that we don't realize like the impact we have on the internet. So you assume like... I wouldn't care about me, so why does she care about me? Whereas I think we don't even realize the power that we have when we message someone anything. And the fact that no matter how many followers they have or no matter what blue checks or verified version follows their name, like many people care about what other people say about them. Um, And, you know, as a fan of you, I'm going to say you do matter, not to make this too cheesy or anything, but... Uh, oh, thank you, Mr. Dillon. There are there are no words within the English language which could, <laughs> which could describe how flattered I am that you care about me. I genuinely think you matter, and I'm saying this very sincerely. Um, I feel like when you have a conversation with someone, you're like, well, you're a human being to me now. And that means that I care about your existence. So just know that. You're just reaching out with so much compassion and grace and what, you know, is intrinsically a super complicated situation. I'm just like, what is it like to hold these conversations, Dylan? Yeah, you know, this podcast, this whole project is exhausting to do. But I think there's a misunderstanding of where the exhaustion comes from. I think Hmm. quite often the conversations are my favorite part of this whole thing. It feels Hmm. like you are actively subverting the desire of the current social platforms we communicate on by communicating voice to voice, by communicating empathically, by treating someone else as a human being. It it feels like they all happen in this sacred space um, where people get to know each other. 
where the exhaustion comes from is everything leading up to it and everything after the conversation. So everything leading up to it is, you know, you have to reach out to a lot of people. I made the mistake of making a podcast that people don't want to be on, you know? So and then the other part of the exhaustion is everything that happens afterwards, right? Um, it's not only editing it because I, I take my edit so seriously. That is its own sacred space while carrying it into the public square where conversation and building bridges often get at best side eye and at worst active resistance from people who think that conversation is not worth having. Conversation across difference, we have passed that. We are beyond that. It is time for battle. Some people think that. I obviously don't, but I respect that some people do. And so that's where the exhaustion comes from. The conversation itself feels like you are in the presence of the divine. Hmm. It feels like hopeful. Um and it feels fertile with possibility. The idea of the divinity I find really interesting, I think partly because, I don't know, it makes me think of, of any time when when people are in honest, difficult conversation, mm. actively listening, explaining their points of view. I do feel like there's a, there's an attention that happens mm. that, feels so rare in this day and age, I think, especially when you think about social media and like what happens in your brain when you're just scrolling yeah. versus like actively communicating with another human being, yeah. you know? No, completely. And I think like, and, and you brought that up and, and that's very true. Like it has to actually be conversation. It's not about uh, talking to someone who is just going to berate you. It's not about talking mm -hmm. to someone who is trying to fight you. And, mm -hmm. you know, this whole concept, this whole project is built on the foundation of empathy. It is, right. of course, not only necessary but vital that that empathy has to go both ways. Um, mm -hmm. And so, you know, critics of empathy who I think are mostly eye-rolling at how overused that word is um, kind of don't realize that I'm not saying that just like – kind of unchecked empathy for the other side is how we get to the promised land. No, like empathy is a two-way street. If you are not in conversation with someone who is giving you the respect of a human being, it's really hard to continue. Yeah. Well, I feel like there's a, I mean, another word that I find to be super important when it comes to conversations like this is grace. Mm, 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 mm. You know, because, yeah. and it's like, it's not... It's not a debate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It's not about, you know, like, well, let's play devil's advocate or yeah. like, I'd like some data on that. Yeah. Right. It's about, you know, giving someone the benefit of the doubt and, and believing their lived experiences. Completely. You know? And and that becomes really complicated when it's someone who you've been taught to disagree with for so long. Someone you've you've mm -hmm. been taught is the enemy. I think that grace is not something that's really fostered much in the public square. Offering radical grace to someone um, doesn't feel like it carries as much weight as destroying someone in an absolutely hilarious and devastating and entertaining way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure. So you kind of uh, alluded to some of the conversations that you had, especially earlier on in your podcast. Mm -hmm. And we, we have a clip from one, actually. And um, this is an early episode, and you talk to a teenager 
who said online that you're the reason the country is dividing itself mm-hmm. and also said some really homophobic things to you. Mm-hmm. And during that conversation, you discovered that you were both bullied in high school. Let's take a listen and then we can chat about it. This conversation is kind of weird for me because I feel like there is so much to you that I relate to, right? There's, I relate to the fact that you're bullied. Um, I relate to the fact that people kind of give you a hard time for who you are. And yet there are such fundamental things that we disagree on. Mm-hmm. Do you feel that we're similar or do you feel like that's, that's an unfair assertion? I think we're similar, but like you said, we have very different, we have similar lies, but very different beliefs. You're bullied, I'm bullied, but it's not for the same reason. Right. But I would actually argue and say that it is for a similar reason. I, I think people, um, are very, are very cruel to what they don't understand. What's it like for you to listen back to an early conversation like that now? What I hear is me talking to one of the most unlikely friends I have in my life, right? Like, he wrote a homophobic message to me, and I've been in touch with him for the last five years. Um, (laughs) And I also, like, I think he is a very special person. And I say that because he was... Even when we first spoke, he was 18. He was a teenager. He was in high school. And he was so – I was just blown away by his vulnerability, his self-awareness, his curiosity, his willing to own up to what he said, still acknowledging that he still – he believes this stuff. You know, like – and of course I'm not going to change his decades of learning because we have a phone call with each other. I'm not going to change decades of learning if we have 10 phone calls with each other. Um, um, But I think – you know, there, there was there was always such a magic to my conversations with him, and um, I'm not taking credit for that. I think I think it was it was that I stumbled upon someone who was really down to do this. Mm-hmm. It's almost nostalgic to listen to that because that was um, mm-hmm. the person who who kicked this whole thing off. So, so you also have a book that's based on what you've learned from the podcast mm-hmm. that's out now. Um, you dedicated the book to your mom. Mm-hmm. And in the dedication, you say she taught you to walk toward conflict and not away from Mm. it, which is beautiful and I think speaks to grace as well. Um, But it also makes me think of the idea that that we should be seeking out uncomfortable conversations. Yeah. You know, I mean, do you think that's kind of what she's getting at when when she says that to you? Yeah. I mean, this is truly what she's given me. I I mean, (laughs) she's given me so much. I love my (laughs) mom. Um, But I mean, I think the biggest gift that she gave me that enabled me to do this show, to do this project is that, you know, I genuinely am interested in conflict and it's very important to say emotional conflict, physical conflict um, terrifies me. Um, And so this is why I don't do this project with people, you know, with the homophobic strangers who have punched their uh, fist into their open palm and muttered, a homophobic slur at me, right? Like, I'm not like, hello, sir, would you like to sit down and have a talk? Like, no, I have to preserve my own safety. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's not Um, safe. But I am fascinated by conflict. So my mom is a therapist, and I think she really helped me reframe 
and and raised me to reframe conflict not as a bad thing, but something to be understood. So it's never something to avoid. It's always something that actually, if you look at it, it can teach you something about yourself and your relationship with the person. And let's take mm-hmm. the example of a homophobic commenter who, who said something homophobic to me. It really feels so powerful when you're able to say, well, why do you believe those things? And suddenly you both are navigating through their personal and religious history considering everything they're saying not as necessarily a direct affront to you but a an entryway into why they believe what they believe. And again, that doesn't excuse the hurtful things people say to you, but they help mm-hmm. us contextualize them. And by helping to contextualize them, we are able to more easily understand the world and I think be less afraid of it. And I also think it's the acknowledgement that they didn't invent these ideologies, but these ideologies were taught to them. Dylan, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure to talk with you. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me. In just a minute, it's probably been a while since you picked up a Rick Steve or Lonely Planet guidebook. After all, the world has changed a lot in the past couple of years. So what is the future of the travel guide? We're going to find out. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. From 2019 to 2020, travel book sales in the United States decreased by 40%. Considering most of us were not exactly going anywhere in 2020, that's not a huge surprise. Now, airline sales are back up. People are finally getting to take the trips they planned in 2020 or the ones we all fantasized about while we were stuck inside. But in the year 2022, is there still a need or even room in your carry-on for a travel guidebook? Jen Rose Smith is the author of six guidebooks to Vermont and New England. She recently wrote a Washington Post article called Travel Guidebooks Aren't Dead, But They'll Never Be the Same. Maybe that's a good thing. She talked with Nerdette producer Anna Bauman about it. Okay, so it seems like guidebooks would be a thing of the past, pandemic or not, because of the internet. So what do you like about them when you travel? Yeah, I mean, I certainly use the internet while I travel, but I just find that looking up information on traveling on my phone while I'm out and about can kind of lead to this endless scroll. And it can also kind of suck me back into my home world. I can end up checking my email and feeling less tuned into the place that I am. Right, right. So you're not like looking around at the place you are. You're still just staring at the screen that you see, you know, whether you're in Paris or in your house. It's true, though I should say I'm kind of ambivalent about guidebooks too. I started traveling around late 90s, early 2000s. And at the time, people really complained about guidebooks because there is this sense that 
everyone always went to the same places, that you would see people with a lonely planet over and over again from place to place. Um, but I think that the problem guidebook solve has changed. At the time, there wasn't all that many ways to find out information about where to stay in a city you hadn't been to. But now there's so much information on the internet. I think that guidebooks can kind of help by winnowing that information to something a little bit more manageable. Right, right. I really liked how in your article you described guidebooks as an escape hatch from that digital overwhelm. Because I know that like when I decide to pick up a guidebook when I'm traveling, it's because, you know, whoever I'm traveling with and I are like so hungry, like kind of hangry and just getting onto Google Maps or Yelp or whatever it is, is like too much. It's just too many options. Yeah, I definitely feel that as well. I mean, and I think in a way, any book is going to be like a relationship with a particular person. And maybe you like that person's take on a place and maybe you don't. But if you do, you really have this sense that you know what they're looking for. You know how to interpret what they're saying about restaurants. And I kind of value that sense of authorship. Okay. So taking a step back, can you give me an idea of how you've seen the guidebook industry change over the last decade or so? Yeah. I mean, guidebooks are still pretty big, but there was a while where it seemed like guidebooks were just in free fall. And in 2013, there was this big spate of essays talking about the death of the guidebook. But then they sort of leveled off. People have stuck to using guidebooks since then. I mean, it remains to be seen whether that's true as an older generation of travelers is replaced by a younger generation of travelers who might have less experience with guidebooks. I mean, I think there's still this sense that we're going to have to wait and see. Right, right. And like one thing I'm thinking about now as, you know, you you talk to Rick Steves, who um, is going to Europe after two years away. Um, and are, do you think that, you know, writers like him and, uh, and other guidebook writers are kind of having to work overtime to put out new work that reflects all the business closures and kind of changes to these cities that happened due to the pandemic? Absolutely. And talking to guidebook authors, that's something that they're saying universally right now, that in some cases, they did all of this research in 2019 for books that were going to come out in 2020. Then they got delayed and they're being extensively re-researched now. So the sense is that the next generation of guidebooks will have a lot more changes than the previous generation because so much has changed. And, you know, like on that same note, what do you expect guidebooks to look like in the next five years or so? And like, do you think they'll keep existing? I think guidebooks will keep existing. I think they look a little bit more like magazines now. So how to think about your trip, how to frame your trip, how to plan your trip. I think that some of these look more like things that you would use at home to do your trip planning. And then maybe you don't bring it with you, or maybe you buy it after your trip, even to kind of remember some of your favorite places. So I think guidebooks will change. And I think they're definitely sticking around. That's so interesting. Do you have a trip coming up? And like, how are you, how do you go about planning for a new trip? I'm actually going to Quebec City this week. And I do have a guidebook to Quebec, <laughs> but I have been pouring over online reviews and doing doing some of that same uh, internet infinity loop research that sometimes I complain about. Jen, thank you so much for talking with me. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for having me on. I appreciate it.
All right, that's it for this week. Thanks for listening, and thanks to the Nerdette crew for keeping all the wheels turning while I was out last week. Y'all are the best. I would also like to send out an extra special good vibes thanks to Nerdette listener Lara, who lives in Montreal and delivered me the sweetest care package while I was sick there. Lara, you seriously made that entire nightmarish experience a little bit better, and I really appreciate it. The show is produced by me and Anna Bauman. Our executive producer is Brendan Banazak. We will see you next week. That's cake. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.